All right, well, I want to invite you to turn um, in your Bible to Ezra chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 70. Well, this is our second week in our series on Ezra, and uh, we're, uh, I'm really excited about this series. Ezra is not a well-known Old Testament book. It's relatively short. It's only 10 chapters. And normally, if you're going to study uh, like an Old Testament book like Ezra and Nehemiah, you would pick Nehemiah because he's cool. Uh, but Ezra does some astonishing things as a leader, and uh, this is a rich book. And so we're right uh, in, at the very beginning and to begin with this morning, I want to take you back to 1804, and I'm going to take you back to an event called the, the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, Thomas Jefferson just completed one of the most amazing real estate transactions in all of human history. He purchased what would become most of the western half of the United States. The seller was Napoleon Bonaparte of France, and the, uh, the purchase was... was not what you would expect a real estate transaction to be like. The Louisiana Purchase uh, was, one point, was $15 million in 1806, which equals $230 million today, but that's $1.5 trillion in today's money. Did he get a good deal? He got a good deal. He got a deal. That's a pretty, pretty astonishing that that happened. Well, I mean, he didn't know what he purchased. And normally when you buy a house, you, you, you inspect it. So what he does is he sends Lewis and Clark out. It's called the Corps of Discovery. And they take a, a trip from St. Louis to the West Coast. And that was truly an epic journey. Started May 16th, 1804, there were 31 members of the expedition. They pushed their canoes, heavily laden canoes, I might add, into the river, and they began to paddle. And they made it all the way to the West Coast and all the way back. They established relationships with two dozen Native, Indian, Native American tribes. They endured high mountains, brutally cold weather, and infuriating mosquitoes. And two years later, they rounded a bend in the river, and they came back to St. Louis. Pretty amazing. Epic journey. And today, you know, in the history of our country, we consider that, you know, a pretty astonishing journey that people could, 30 people could make that one died of appendicitis. I think there's something about the human heart that loves epic journeys. And there's something about the human heart where we would, we would secretly like to be on an epic journey. So you think about the epic journeys that are memorialized in the past. How about Charles Lindbergh, Spirit of St. Louis? He, he boards a plane on Long Island, and he has four sandwiches with him, two canteens of water, and 450 gallons of gas. And he, and he flies across the Atlantic Ocean landing about 33 hours later. Fell asleep a couple of times, but, uh, but woke up when he realized his plane was circling down. Epic journey. Or think about another epic journey. We think about Ernest Shackleton, who in 1910 decided that, he, 1914, he decided he would go down and, and he would go into Antarctica and, and do some explorations there. His ship gets caught in the, in the ice, and so he makes a side trip to rescue his men traveling in lifeboats 800 miles to this remote island. 
and he rescues all of his men. And today we think about, you know, the great age of adventure, and this guy was on an epic journey. Or think about, think about epic journeys in literature. Think about the Lord of the Rings. I use the Lord of the Rings often because I love the books, and I've read them about four or five times. And you, you think about this epic journey. It's an epic journey to save Middle-earth. And so from Homer to Dante to Milton to Chaucer to, I'm out of order there, but, but to, to Tolkien, you, you have all these epic stories. And there's something about the human heart that loves epic stories. So what if I told you that you right now are on an epic adventure. And you, you would say, how? Like I, I get up in the morning and I, I work, I pay bills, I raise kids, I wash dishes, I make meals. Oh, my life is so ordinary. How in the world am I on any sort of an epic journey? Well, the reason why I would say that you're on, on an epic journey is because of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.14. Thanks be to God who always leads us, always not some of the time, leads us in his triumphal procession in Christ. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he began an epic journey called the church. And the moment you came to Christ, you, you joined that epic journey, and your life is an epic journey. And again, you push back and say, oh, that's, that's a little, little too grandiose for my, my way of thinking. And I want to push back on that because it's not grandiose. It is the truth. Your life the life that you live right now is an epic journey. Why is it epic? You have angels around you, right? Hebrews 1.14, angels are ministering spirits who, who are rooting for you. You have angels around you. You have the Holy Spirit within you. God has deposited his Holy Spirit inside you so that you would have power on this journey. You have believers above you. Hebrews chapter 12, a cloud of witnesses above you who are cheering you on. You have the promises of God before you. You are on an epic journey. And the question is, how do I live this epic journey well? We see a journey modeled in Ezra chapters 1 and 2. Because their, their journey was a journey across the Fertile Crescent. The Fertile Crescent goes from the Persian Sea to the Nile River. It's a crescent. It goes up to Assyria. It goes way down into Egypt. And this journey they went on was a thousand-mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. That journey that they took is a lot like the journey that we take. And I want to show you why, and I want to show you how you can excel on the journey. So let's go to the story. The basic storyline is that after 70 years in exile, God leads his people back to their land. And we see this in Ezra 1, verse 5. Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of the Lord. This is an epic journey to do something with the temple so that they can worship God again. It's a, it's a journey. So let me refresh your memory about the context. Remember that Israel is God's chosen nation. And out of all the nations on the face of the earth, God chose that nation through Abraham. He called Abraham into an epic journey from Ur across the Fertile Crescent and down into the land of Canaan. Epic journey number one, quintessential epic journey was the journey of Abraham. 
And God formed Israel into a nation. He delivered them from slavery. He crafted a law code for them like no other. And he, uh, in the land of promise, gave them cities that had already been built, that had already had gardens and, and things like that. And God did all this not so that they would become arrogant and prideful and think they were amazing and better than everybody else. He did it so they could declare the goodness and the greatness of the infinite personal God. However, Israel mismanaged God's blessings in a big way, and they became chronically unfaithful. And God likened their unfaithfulness to a marriage relationship. God says, I, I, I saw you. I married you. You are my wife. You, Israel, were beautiful. We had a marriage covenant. And you became unfaithful. And you gave yourself to the gods of the surrounding nations. And because of that unfaithfulness, God says, I'm going to use the mighty Babylonians to come against you and discipline you. And he did that. Nebuchadnezzar the Great came to power in the 6th century B.C. He wanted to rule the world, and he besieges Jerusalem in 605 B.C. He does it again in 597 B.C. He does it again in 586 B.C. And at the end of those three uh, wars, the city is shattered. Her temple's gone. The children have been removed. They have no hope, no hope at all, except, except for the promises of God. That temple is gone. I don't know where you were six weeks ago when the Notre Dame, Notre Dame uh, Cathedral caught on fire, but a lot of people know that I love art, love art history, and I got texts while I was at lunch, the cathedral's on fire. I couldn't make, get back to my office to look at the news, but when I saw the news, I was like, I was like crushed and heartbroken, all that art going up in, in flames, heartbreaking. Heartbreaking, and yet, you know, there are 40 Gothic cathedrals in Europe. 40. There was one temple. One temple. And so you think about the people who look at the ruins of their temple and they think, we, we have no hope. What hope is there? Everything that we, we cherished is gone, except for the promises of God. And so God did the impossible. Cyrus the Great steps on, the, on the, th uh, the field of human history, and uh, Cyrus is conquering nations, and pretty soon he conquers Babylon. And when he comes into Babylon, the people of Israel show him the prophecy of Isaiah 44 and 45. They say, Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, look, your defeat of Babylon is prophesied, and your name actually appears in the book of Isaiah 140 years before you were born. And Cyrus looks at this, and he says, that's amazing. What does the prophecy say that I did? You sent the people back to Jerusalem. Fantastic. That's what I'm going to do. Now, that's Josephus' story. He's the Roman historian. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's, that's what Josephus says. So we're, we're going with what Josephus says. So um, here's, here's Cyrus, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Wow, we have an open-minded king who's going to send everybody back to their, to their homeland. Uh, and you'd say, 
okay, Cyrus, like that's a thousand miles away. How are we gonna get there? How are we gonna finance the trip? Cyrus is going to help. He says, whoever this Jewish remnant is found, wherever they're found, let their neighbors contribute toward the expenses by giving them silver and gold. So imagine you're, you're taking the trip. You say, I'm, I'm signed up, I'm going back to Jerusalem. What would your neighbors and friends do? Let me, let me, give, you some, let me give you some money. <laughs> I wanna participate in this trip. And so they're gonna be supplied for the journey. Uh, they raise money for, with journey with uh, currency and gifts in kind, like livestock, as well as voluntary offerings for the temple of God, which is in Jerusalem. So that's, that's pretty, pretty cool. Cyrus is going to do something for them. But Cyrus then says, I want to take the stuff out of the treasury in Babylon, and I want somebody to build an Excel spreadsheet that has all the treasures that Nebuchadnezzar removed 70 years ago. I'm going to see that spreadsheet. Let me see all the things that are in Babylon. I want you to take those things with you on your trip back so that your new temple has temple furniture in it that, that is meaningful. And when they count it all up, there's 5,400 articles of gold and silver and plenty more. The 5,400 articles, were the, that's the big stuff. There's some small stuff as well. But Cyrus still isn't done because Cyrus gives them two gifted leaders. The first leader is Sheshbazar. Sheshbazar, kind of a cool name. Sheshbazar is the uncle of Zerubbabel. So Sheshbazar is the older guy. Zerubbabel is the younger guy. Sheshbazar is going to mentor his nephew. His nephew is going to lead the journey all the way, all the way back. Now I want you to imagine that you are um, there in Babylon. You go, okay, Cyrus has said we can go back. Do we go? Do we stay? That's a big choice. Because see, you've lived there for a long time. Um, you wear the clothes of Babylon. You speak the language of Babylon, which was Aramaic and Akkadian. Uh, your children are born and raised in Babylon. They're, they're wearing like the Babylonian thunder shirts when they go to school. They've got lunch boxes that, that say, you know, the Babylonian baseball team, you know, the Wildcats or whatever they were called. I mean, you're thoroughly Babylonianized. Do you stay or do you go? And that was a very hard choice. Maybe, maybe you think, I, I, I'd love to go, but I've got elderly parents. I can't leave them. I'd love to go, but I got a business and I got partners. I can't leave them. This is a big choice. It was a serious choice. Am I going to stay? Am I going to go? And then there was the journey itself. It's a thousand miles by foot. I mean, how many of you have, have thought, I don't know if I want to make that thousand mile journey. I got a car that, you know, tires are not doing so well. I'm not sure I want to make that thousand mile journey by car. This is a thousand mile journey by foot. And they don't have Air Nikes to walk in. They're sandals. And a lot of them didn't have donkeys. It's a tough, tough journey. So how are people going to be motivated to do this? Well, they're going to be motivated because God stirs up their hearts. I love that Hebrew word, stirred up. It's, it's the word that means to stir up some birds in a nest to get them out of the nest and flying. God is stirring people up. So the choice is, is, is your choice, but God is the one who's stirring people up to make that choice in order to be able to go. And so there are three groups. 
There were those that went. There were those who stayed and financed those who went. That was a valuable ministry. And there were those who said, I don't care. I'm not going. And I'm not going to finance it. You stay and finance. You go or you stay and you don't care. Those were the three groups that seemed to be, to be there. Let me pause just a second and just, just say that this is like the choice that Jesus gives to us regarding the Christian life. Because the Christian life is, is an epic journey. It's a triumphal procession. Jesus is always leading us in his triumphal procession in Christ. And we can either reckon the fact that we're on the journey or say, eh, not for me, not for me. Those who say, you know, I, I am on this journey are people who say, you know what, I'm going to take spiritual warfare seriously. I'm going to take prayer seriously. I'm going to take spiritual discipline seriously. If I reckon that I am on a triumphal processionary journey with, with Jesus, I'm going to take the elements of the Christian life seriously. I'm going to work on, on my understanding of the scriptures. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to abide with the risen Christ. I want to regard God the Father as my Abba Father. I'm going to take it seriously. Now, there's some Christians who don't do that. And if you're in that category, I urge you to regard yourself as being on an epic journey with Jesus. Amen. So guess how many choose to go on this journey back in Ezra's day? Or I should say Zerubbabel's day. 50,000 people. It's amazing. There's 43,000 mentioned in Ezra 264, but there's some other people mentioned as well a little bit later. It's about 50,000 people. If the population of the Jewish remnant in Babylon was half a million, this is 10% of the Jewish exiles. 10% decided to go. And I'm reckoning mathematically that maybe 20% supported the 10%. That's 30% of the people, the Jewish people, were faithful. Is that a good percentage or a bad percentage? It's a percentage. It's a percentage. Here's the deal. God always loves to work with a remnant. He always loves to work with the minority few. Always loves to work with them because the minority few can change the world. And if you're part of the minority few, that's fantastic because you're in a great position to be able to change the world. And so we see God celebrating the few by making a list. And so I want to, to, uh, to read you the list. I'm not going to read you the whole 70 verses of people. But I want to read you the list so that you get a feel for this list. Ezra 2 verse 1, here is the list of the Jewish exiles of the provinces who returned from their captivity. Now we get this big long list that you can easily gloss over when you read the book of Ezra. Some of you read the book, the Bible, you know, through, you know all the way through every year, and you get to Ezra chapter 2 and you go, eh, I'm going to pass this over. Well, let's think about this. The, the leaders were Zerubbabel, he's the main leader, Jeshua, Nehemiah, this is not the Nehemiah of the book of Nehemiah, but a guy with the same name. There was Seriah, Reliah, Mordecai, not the Mordecai of the book of, Nehemiah, of Esther, but a different Mordecai. There was Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, kind of a cool name. What's your name? Bigvi. Uh, Rehum and Banah. And here's verse 3. This is the number of the men of Israel who returned from exile, the family of Parash. 
2,172. I'm telling you, they loved specificity in their numbers. These guys were big time into Excel and spreadsheets and documentations. The family of uh, uh, Shephatiah, 372. The family of Ara, 775. The family of Pahath, Moab, descendants of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The family of Elam, 1,254. The family of Zatu, 945. Want me to keep on going? Okay, it's, it's, it's a, little bit, a little bit tedious, a little bit tedious. But let me make some observations about the list. Observation number one. People who make choices to do epic things need to be recognized. They need to be recognized. These people made a choice to do epic things. And God in his grace chooses to recognize them. Look, if you were the God of the universe and you're in the process of, of writing your word, you would probably condense your word knowing that one day it's going to be bound in a book and you want people to take that book with them, maybe put it in their back pocket of their Levi's, right? You want that book to be compact and small enough that people can carry it with them. Why would you have 70 verses of names and numbers? Why? There's a great reason. And the reason is God loves to celebrate those who make epic choices and choose to be on an epic journey. And if you're, if, you're, if you're one of those people, God celebrates you even though you think, but my life is kind of ordinary. No, you're on an epic journey. Reckon the fact that that is, is so and realize that God loves to celebrate who you are. You know, in the year 2019, we have this really weird value in our culture where there are people who are famous for being famous. It's crazy. People haven't done anything. You know, the, the, the famous, for being famous people are people like Kim Kardashian, Paris Hilton, Kevin Federline, people that, that grace the covers of People magazine, famous for being famous. It's, it's this, this really weird idea. We have, we have now this new category of celebrity people, like celebrity as an adjective, a celebrity chef, a celebrity doctor, a celebrity entertainer and horror of horrors, celebrity pastors. If ever there was an oxymoron, that's, the, that, that's, that's, that's one, right? That, that, that's, that's a thing today, and it's a bad thing today. It's a bad thing today. God is highlighting just the opposite. He's highlighting people whose names would not be known because they're so ordinary. But they make, make extraordinary choices to do, to do epic things. So my first observation is this. People who choose to be on epic journeys need to be recognized. And you, if you're on that journey, need to realize God loves you. And God loves you for the choices that you've made to be on that journey. Here's a second observation about people on the list. People on an epic journey need to use their natural talents and their natural gifts. So here's what's cool about this list. This list is structured according to mission. The mission is to go back to Jerusalem and worship the living God. And so we have, we have the leaders in verses 1 and 2. We have the lay leaders in verses 2 through 35. We have the priests in 36 through 39. We have the Levites in verse 40. We have the temple singers in verse 41. We have the temple servants in 43 through 45. 
And then finally, we have people who lost their genealogical records. So like, nobody knows if they're really Jewish or not, or maybe part Jewish, part Babylonian. They're taking the risk to go because they believe in the mission to, back and, to go back and worship God. So this list is structured according to natural gifts and talents. And the thing that I would say is that, is that you, as a follower of Jesus, can serve him in your natural gifts and natural talents. If you're naturally talented and gifted in a certain way, that, that can be used to advance the cause of Christ. That can be used in worship. If you're really good at carpentry or nursing or Excel spreadsheets, which I'm not, you know, God can use those natural gifts and talents to advance the kingdom of God. Celebrate that. What you do on your job is not like, oh, that's my job part, I've got my other part. No, what you do on the job can be an expression of worship to the living God. Here's a third observation about this list. Some people on the epic journey are unique, sometimes quirky, and sometimes peculiar. That's okay, they're all still heroes. And when push comes to shove, aren't you sometimes quirky? Aren't you sometimes peculiar? Yeah, I, I, I am. Okay? Heroism on the journey is about your faith. So let's, let's think about some of the quirky people. Look at verse 51. If you've, I don't have it on the screens, but if you've got a Bible, look at verse 51. There's a guy named Hakufa. That name literally means humpback. So this guy had some physical challenges. He had a physical disability. But those physical challenges are not going to prevent him from taking a 1,000-mile journey around the Fertile Crescent to get to Jerusalem to build the temple. Okay? Here's a guy who's got physical challenges. Doesn't matter. He is committed to the mission. And then there's a guy named Backbuck. Backbuck. That name Backbuck in Hebrew literally means bottle. And it is likely a reference to his weight. He had a big belly. So here's, here's Backbuck. And uh, Backbuck, you know, uh, you know, he's, he's got a weight issue. That's not going to prevent him from going that 1,000-mile journey around the Fertile Crescent to get to Jerusalem to accomplish the mission. There are two women here that are mentioned. One is named Hasophereth in verse 55. Her name means the female scribe. The female scribe. Here, this woman uh, was able to get into a typically male profession. Unusual. Like, like you wouldn't expect that, but that's, that's there. Uh, we see another woman named Pokoroth Hazebayim, which means huntress of gazelles. Hunting back in the ancient world was a male-dominated kind of a thing. Here's a woman who got involved in that, and she is excelling in that particular male-oriented field. She's going on that trip. One of the guys whose name I really love is Parash. His name means flea. Flea. How insignificant is a flea? Flea is the thing you flick off your... You flick off your dog, you know, and, and yet uh, his descendants represent the largest family of priests returning from Babylon. So here's a guy who is insignificant, and yet he does something enormously significant with his life. What, I, what I'm saying is people on this journey are unique. They're sometimes quirky. They're sometimes peculiar. That's okay. 
They're celebrated by God because they've chosen to make the journey. So um, let me make one, one other observation before we move on. On the epic journey, you've got to trust God for money. You've got to trust Him for money. And why, and why, do, I, why do I say that? They start in, <clears throat> these guys start, as they start, they're carrying almost $12 million in today's economy. That included $10.6 million in gold and $1.3 million in silver. And it's, it's denominated in gold and silver. It's not like they got credit. I got my Chase Sapphire Reserve card. I've got a $10 million credit line here, and I'm going to go to the bank in Jerusalem, and I'm, I'm going to cash in on the money. No, that money is with them. So you think they were a little nervous about that? Nehemiah takes the equivalent of $50 million 12 years later, and he asked the king, I want the Persian Navy SEALs to accompany me. He's not taking any chances. So they've got to trust God for money on this journey. And while you're on the journey of the Christian life, let me tell you something. You, you've got to trust God for money. Amen. So a brief overview of the, of the journey. What they do is they take the Fertile Crescent um, and they, they journey a thousand miles. They go up to the city of Aleppo. Uh, they take a hard left at Aleppo. They head down the, uh, the Jordan Rift Valley to, to Jerusalem. And that is going to be a 1,000 mile journey taking at least four months if they go pedal to the metal. But 50,000 people don't travel pedal to the metal. So this is a long journey. And while they're on the journey, I can imagine them approaching Jerusalem and thinking about God's word and thinking, this is going to be amazing. Once we get there, it's going to be awesome. Think about this verse. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And then they arrive, and it's not that. Not that. It was that. It's not that. It's a broken down, shattered city and ruins. And therefore, their worship has to be by faith. And Psalm 126 tells us that same thing. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. They had to look upon the rubble that was there and say, God is good. Just like on your epic journey, sometimes you got to look at the mess which is your life and you got to say, God is good. I'm in the middle of the mess and that's okay. That's okay because God is present with me in the middle of the mess. So let's, let's break from the story and let's think about the significance. This story definitely parallels the journey that we're on called the Christian life. And the main idea of this journey is this. God has called you to an epic journey. It's a journey of following the risen Christ in community, and it's a journey of worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's a journey of worship that involves all you possess, your work, your family, your body, your money, your time, your future. That's the epic journey. Your journey is an epic journey, ultimately, to follow Jesus and to worship the triune God with everything that you are. You know, when you think about this, it's a journey that involves sacrifice. Just like 
you know, 30% of the Israelites, well, 10% went, probably 20% supported those who went. This is a journey that involves sacrifice. It's a journey that requires a conscious choice. Cyrus gave people the choice. God gives you the choice. Consider your life an epic journey. Well, maybe sometimes you say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. I want to live, I want to live on my journey. You have that choice. Now, the Holy Spirit stirs you up so that you make the right choice, but you definitely have the choice. And the choice involves a big vision of God and your future and heaven and eternal significance. So I want you to think, um, again, back to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, because I think this, this wonderfully depicts a nature of, uh, of the journey. Of all the people living in Middle-earth, the hobbits were the most humble. I recently read one of the appendices of the Lord of the Rings, and Tolkien says that the hobbits measured about four feet high. I, I never thought about it when I read the book about them being four feet high, but he says that they're, they're, they're four feet high. Unless you're like Mary and Pippin who drink tree beards drink and they grow extra inches. But that, that's, they're, they're humble. And yet in this epic journey, humility achieves greatness, right? Because they seized upon the journey and they did what was required of them. Or I think about, think about this guy. This is the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell. Mike Lindell spends years and years and years and years perfecting his My Pillow. And Mike Lindell goes to state fairs and people ridicule him and they laugh at him and they say, you're crazy, that will, that will never do anything. And then he begins to edge toward Jesus. And when he comes to Christ, what he realizes is that his horrible shyness and inability to speak in front of people was transformed into the ability to speak in front of people. And the guy is all over, all over television now. He's making a ton of money. He's a follower of Christ. So, so here's what he does with his epic journey. He says, I was an out-of-control cocaine addict with all sorts of other addictions as well. And now that I've come to Christ, and now that I'm clean and sober, my goal as a follower of Jesus is to help others in recovery. I want to I put together mentors with people who are new in recovery, and I want the mentors to help them move people out of addiction into sobriety for the long haul. The guy is on an epic journey. It's a journey that was very painful. It's a journey now where there is tremendous purpose. It's an epic journey. So here's the, here's the idea. Again, God has called you into an epic journey in community to worship the risen Christ, and that involves all that you possess, work, family, body, money, time, and future. All right, so now for some takeaways. How do we thrive on this journey? Well, the first takeaway is this. Embrace the journey paradigm. Embrace the paradigm. Say to yourself, self, I am on an epic journey. Embrace it. You know, sometimes you have to embrace a new paradigm. I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to be on the local baseball team in the worst possible way. It was the Birmingham Panthers. And I made it onto the baseball team. I got my jersey. And when I pulled my jersey on, I was a panther. I was a panther. 
Back in those days in Detroit, you could go to the Detroit Lions training camp and you could watch them train. I thought that was kind of cool. So I would paddle my bike to the Detroit Lions training camp and I was there every day watching the guys train. And pretty soon the guys that I was watching TV were saying, hey, the Panther's here. The Panther's here. That was fun. Paradigm shift. Not the Panther. Now, now, I'm a, now I'm a baseball player on a baseball team called the Panthers. Paradigm shift. So then, you know, I had another paradigm shift when I became a young father. Here I'm, I'm 27, 20, 29. I've got three kids now. I've got four kids. Cindy and I go to Colorado Springs. We go to the Navigators uh, training uh, there in Colorado Springs, and, and I'm climbing rocks. I get up really high. I have, I'm, I'm free soloing very high, and I think, what the heck am I doing? I've got four kids. Paradigm shift. I, can't, I shouldn't be doing this thing right now. I had another paradigm shift after I became a pastor and realized, okay, so I, I, need, to, I need to really look after my life and make sure that I'm doing what I need to be doing as, as a shepherd. Paradigm shift. All of us have to have a paradigm shift about the journey. Okay? You are on an epic journey and you've got to seize that paradigm. That's a really important thing. A second thing is that you need to name the season of the journey you're in right now. Here's a, here's a guy walking across a raging river in a backpack. That guy is in a season... <laughs> It's a season of danger, right? You've you got to name the season that you're in. You know, we are in different seasons on our journey. Sometimes people will fail you. Sometimes you fail people. Maybe your career gets stalled out. Maybe your health trends in a bad situation. Maybe your finances take a nosedive. We, we all have seasons in our journey. We, we live in a fallen world, and sometimes through whatever circumstances take place, we, we get into a tough place. Okay, name the season. When Cindy and I moved to Baltimore many years ago, we were under a lot of pressure. We were under pressure financially. We were under pressure because we had four young kids. Um, it, was a, it was a season, hard season. And I was journaling at that time reams and reams of paper. And I remember one day I was down in our basement. I was journaling. And I said, okay, here's the season of our life we're in right now. And for the next month or so, I just, I just put that one word that one word at the top of the page, this is the season we're in right now. I don't like it. It's painful. It's hard. That's the season we're in. So Lord, I'm coming to you as a member of the body of Christ on an epic journey in a hard season. Lord, give me grit in this hard season. Give me grit to trust you and rely upon the Spirit in this hard season. I want to do this the right way. Third application is link up with other people who are on the journey. You know, Zerubbabel journeyed 1,000 miles with 50,000 people with him. Like, that's community. He had a community with him. And it was a, a community that was a purposeful community. They're going to worship the triune God. You know, when you're on a, on a journey in community, it always makes things better. Uh, many years ago, Jared and I, um, my two sons were hiking out of the Grand Canyon. Caleb took off. He was a, an amazing hiker. He, he took off, but Jared was young. And we, we leave our campsite, and Jared, who's, I don't know how old he was, but he was young, looks at me and says, Dad, you want to hang out together on the hike out of the Grand Canyon? 
I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. I will tell you, it was a grueling hike. But Jared wanted to hang out. And so we hiked slowly, purposefully, joyfully, hanging out together, not being too obsessive compulsive about our speed. And it ranks as one of the best days of my entire life because we did something hard in community. And when you're on the epic journey of the Christian life, sometimes you're doing stuff that's hard and community makes it infinitely, infinitely better. Sometimes we need help on the community. So let me say one other thing. Some of you, um, some of you are not on the journey because you're not a follower of Jesus. And if that's you, here's what I would say. I would say you need to come to Christ, okay? Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life and eternal forgiveness. And by transferring your trust onto the finished work of Jesus Christ, you move into a place where you have eternal forgiveness and eternal life. That sets you on the journey. And that that journey is a great journey. It's a noble journey. It's an epic journey. It's a journey that gives you purpose. It's a journey that gives you power. If you're not on that journey, get on that journey. If you're somebody who says, you know, I've been sort of backsliding. I've been lukewarm. I haven't considered myself to be on the journey. You know, Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and fellowship with him. So if you're a believer and, and you've kind of victored off the journey, get back on the journey and, and realize that this is an epic journey of purpose to worship those in Christ. Let's stand for our closing prayer.